This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where 213 new COVID-19 fatalities have been reported by the state health department. There was also a surge in new cases, but the governor says that was an anomaly. As it turns out, it was a data dump from a new private lab that included results from as far back as June. The data was stale. It was not indicative of current trends, much less a, quote, record day of fresh infections in Miami. The governor is also thanking teachers who are returning to the classroom by comparing it to a mission by the Navy SEALs. Just as the SEALs surmounted obstacles to bring Osama bin Laden to justice, so too would the Martin County school system find a way to provide parents with a meaningful choice of in-person instruction or continued distance learning. That's my nomination for worst comparison ever, especially during a pandemic where teachers are wondering if simply doing their jobs will cost them their lives. Early voting is now underway in most of Florida, but not everywhere. Voting rights advocates say that's a problem, and they're asking the governor to make it easier for people to vote early during the November election. In the midst of the current pandemic, every election official in Florida, from the governor to the county supervisors of elections, has an obligation to ensure that Floridians have equal access to safe early voting. For the August primary, many counties are still not offering the maximum number of days and hours. The COVID crisis is hitting veterans hard, and Florida is number three in the nation for the number of residents who are also vets. Today on Sunrise, a deep dive into the problem with the woman who quite literally wrote the book on health care for veterans. Veterans as a population are older, sicker, and poorer than other Americans, and they have very, very specific health care problems. The PSC Nominating Council has selected four finalists for a seat on the Public Service Commission. Three of them are state lawmakers. The fourth is already on the PSC and wants another four-year term. We'll also check out your daily calendar of political events and check in with a Florida man who hit the wrong car when he ran a red light in Sefner. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Thursday, August 12th. Florida's COVID death toll has reached 8,898 and will probably break through the 9,000 mark when the numbers are updated today. The health department reported 213 new fatalities Wednesday. Over the past week, we've averaged about 164 deaths per day. The state also confirmed 8,109 additional cases of COVID-19 Wednesday, increasing the state's total to almost 551,000. But Governor Ron DeSantis claims the 8,000 figure is an anomaly because of a data dump by a Miami corporation that's doing the lab tests. They reported more than 4,000 positive cases in one day, but some of those cases were as many as seven weeks old, which makes the data pretty much worthless. As it turns out, it was a data dump from a new private lab that included results from as far back as June. The data was stale. It was not indicative of current trends, much less a, quote, record day of fresh infections in Miami. The delay in reporting those 4,000 positive cases means those people have been spreading COVID without knowing it since June. During a brief address at the state capitol last night, the governor also painted a rosy picture of the school reopening that is now underway in Florida, and he thanked the teachers who know they're putting themselves in harm's way. Now, I know this is a challenging time, and I want to personally thank all of our teachers and administrators who have worked so hard to provide these opportunities for our kids. I know parents across Florida appreciate it, too. Thank you for helping to keep society moving forward. Thank you for giving our kids the opportunity to learn in person. And thank you for bringing to families what so many want more than anything after these long many months, a renewed sense of normalcy. Students are excited, respectful, and following the safety guidance. 
they are in a safe environment where they can have that connection to their teachers that distance learning cannot quite provide. The return to school also reminds us that the role that teachers play in student lives is something that extends far beyond mere schoolwork. We should know in a few weeks if it really is safe for schools to reopen. Early voting is underway for next week's primary, but in the age of COVID-19, that may not be enough. Brad Ashwell is the Florida State Director of a group called All Voting is Local, and he says state and local officials have to do more to expand early voting so they can, shall we say, flatten the curve on Election Day? In the midst of the current pandemic, every election official in Florida, from the governor to the county supervisors of elections, has an obligation to ensure that Floridians have equal access to safe early voting. For the August primary, many counties are still not offering the maximum number of days and hours. Um, the maximum uh, number of days is 14, the maximum number of hours is 12. In Broward County, a county with a history of election problems, they're only offering nine days of early voting, the minimum number of hours per day. Uh, Brevard is offering the minimum number of days, the minimum hours, except for the last five days, uh, where they still fall below the maximum. Seminole County is offering the minimum days and hours. Lee County is offering the minimum days and hours. Volusia is offering the minimum days and, and less than the maximum hours. Sarasota is offering nine days, but still the minimum number of hours. And, and this list isn't exhaustive, but I think it makes the point that many supervisors are falling far short of offering the maximum allowable early voting at a time when this is critical for ensuring voters' safety during the pandemic. Uh, we also recently created a map layering early voting locations for the primary, the August primary, on top of census tract demographic information for black and Hispanic voters. Um, and looking at this map, there are several counties where the early vote locations appear to be inaccessible to these communities. After the, the primary is over, we plan to speak with the supervisors uh, and talk about, you know, where they might consider placing additional sites. But just to highlight several of those in Volusia County, we'll be urging Supervisor Lewis to place an additional polling place near uh, an area in the northwest corner of the county, which has a large Hispanic population, 42%, and there's no early voting site remotely near it. In Alachua County, uh, we'll be urging Supervisor Barton to place additional locations uh, near an area in Gainesville with significant percentages of youth voters and black Hispanic voters, uh, which doesn't appear to have a site nearby. You know, the need for additional polling locations in the counties just mentioned really jump off the map, and that's why we're highlighting them. However, we did notice several other gaps in other counties. We plan to reach out to um, Osceola, Orange, Duval, and Hillsborough as well. You know, it's important to point out that additional uh, early voting sites requires additional funding at a time when COVID-19 is impacting local and state budgets and every aspect of the election process. That's why uh, many of our groups have been advocating for additional election funding in Congress. Um, Last March, Congress signed the CARES Act, sending $20 million to Florida uh, with a $4 million match requirement for elections funding. We're happy that this week that money is finally getting out the supervisors who requested it, and at least we're told it will. But we're also concerned that the governor's secretary of state really slow walked the disbursement of these funds at every step of the process, and that um, SOEs are just getting funds five months, five months later. Um, counties really need that funding, and state officials should be doing everything they can to make sure voters have a safe, accessible voting experience. If you're looking for an expert on Florida elections, Ion Sancho is your man. He spent 28 years as Leon County's elections supervisor, and after the 2004 campaign, he proved that the new electronic voting machines could be hacked. State officials were furious that he even allowed the test in the first place. They accused him of undermining confidence in the system. But the rest of the country hailed him as a hero and a guardian of the ballot. He's retired now, but Sancho is still keeping an eye on the election system in Florida, and he says the governor was informed early on that the state would have to make changes to accommodate voters during a pandemic. Shortly after the March 17th presidential primary, Florida's supervisor of elections, 
took the unprecedented action of submitting a plan to handle the coronavirus to Governor DeSantis. This action was unprecedented. I can tell you, as a supervisor for 28 years, the supervisor of elections had never sent such a request uh, unanimously for any purpose to the governor or the secretary of state. And this plan was centered around expanding early voting, expanding early voting from the current 15 days to 22 days before the election, the November 3rd election, and keeping those early voting sites open through Election Day, providing 24 days of voting for the in-person voters. They weren't asking for any new rules or laws. They were asking for the governor to grant them the same authority that he had granted to Bay and Gulf counties under his executive order 19-262 after those counties remained damaged from Hurricane Michael. Two months later, Governor DeSantis finally responded, completely ignoring the supervisor's early voting requests. Again, the heart of their letter. Instead, he provided for a few extra days for voting by mail, four more days of processing, and a week more uh, time to send them out, and focus his entire plan on in-person voting on Election Day. I urge the governor to reconsider the Supervisor of Elections proposal, designed to provide, and I quote from their letter, a more efficient and safe election. Don't force the majority of Florida's in-person voters to crowd the polls on one day. The supervisor's plan recognizes the necessity of social distancing during the election. This is an issue that can be accomplished with a 24-day window for voting instead of forcing all of the voters to crowd on one day. Congress knew voting would be a problem during the pandemic, so they included money for elections in the first COVID stimulus bill, the one called the CARES Act. That bill included 20 million bucks for Florida elections. But Kirk Bailey with the ACLU in Miami says the state's been sitting on that money for months while the election supervisors were scrambling. Of course, 2020 is a pivotal election. It's a truism to state that. And and obviously vote by mail has been an indispensable part of that, um, not only in Florida, but in many other states um, around the country as well. But it is it is simply not enough, and some voters cannot rely on vote by mail. So early voting will continue to be necessary to ensure that voters um, can cast their ballots and express their 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 vote clearly. Um, obviously, they want to be able to do that without enduring crowds and long lines and scheduling conflicts, especially with the increased um, threat of coronavirus and the fact that many are being forced into caregiver roles or responsibility roles that they might not previously have had. And so um, if we do not improve the safety and security around early voting, um, we're going to continue the, the spread of COVID-19 and prolong the pandemic, um, which obviously is problematic for the state um, as well as individuals. The federal government has provided uh, resources through the CARES Act and other mechanisms to fund election administration in light of the COVID pandemic. Those monies have already been dispersed to the state, but those funds have not been dispersed to the local uh, supervisors, which is incredibly problematic. And I think the point we just want to emphasize is that with Florida being such a pivotal state in this election, it's irresponsible for the state of Florida to, to delay support for local officials responsible for conducting our elections. Governor DeSantis and the Secretary of State need to do better, and they need to disperse these funds fully to all the counties immediately. 
Next up on Sunrise, a deep dive into problems faced by Florida veterans during the COVID crisis. You're listening to the Sunrise podcast from Florida Politics, and we're much obliged. Florida Hospital Association members are safe, ready, and equipped to care for all Floridians. As our hospitals resume elective procedures, ensuring the safety and well-being of our patients, employees, and communities remains our first priority. Contact your local health care provider for information on visitation policies, access restrictions, and how to get needed care safely. Please visit the Florida Hospital Association at fha.org COVID for more information. Welcome back to Sunrise. There are more than one and one half million veterans living in Florida. Only California and Texas have more. And the COVID crisis is hitting them harder than the rest of us. Suzanne Gordon is a journalist and author who focuses on veterans' issues, including health and unemployment. Veterans as a population are older, sicker, and poorer than other Americans, and they have very, very specific healthcare problems. So they, the average uh, patient over 65 um, has what we call three comorbidities. That's three presenting problems, three to five presenting problems when they go to the doctor. The average Vietnam vet has nine to 12. My friend, Kevin Miller, who's an Iraq war vet, um, has He's 32. He was told that he has the body of a 69-year-old. He has 16 different problems from, you know, top to toe. And so he's very, very complex patient. And, and veterans are very disadvantaged when it comes to this global pandemic, because uh, if you have other chronic healthcare problems, it makes you much more susceptible to hospitalization and death with COVID-19. So it's, it's really a very difficult situation that veterans face. And of course, they're older. And, and that's another risk factor for um, hospitalization and death due to COVID-19. Veterans also have more mental health problems uh, than the average population, PTSD, uh, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, major depression, and uh, many of them are economically unstable because they have dead-end jobs and they're much more susceptible to unemployment and underemployment, loss of health insurance if they have it. Because of COVID-19, we've seen a huge spike in veteran and un unemployment to 12%. Veteran unemployment was really going down before this crisis. They weren't necessarily employed in good jobs, but they had jobs. And now many of them have um, lost their jobs and thus their health care. And since veterans do not live in a bubble, Gordon says states like Florida that don't have a mandatory mask order in place are putting those vets at even greater risk. Veterans live and VAs live in a larger ecosystem. So if your state hasn't acted to contain the COVID crisis, to mandate social distancing and masks, then veterans who are out there in the population are highly susceptible to this problem. And since we've explained they're older, sicker, and poor, they're gonna get COVID more than the regular population, and then they're gonna get hospitalized. 
uh, we have preliminary information that health disparities that are so, the, the number of fatalities in African-American and communities of people of color and poor communities that we see in, in non-VA population, deaths, uh, deaths in that population are much lower in the VA system. And this is a really important thing. Um, it's, it's, the VA is, has, um, patients are, are not dying from comorbidities as much be poorer patients, African-American patients, et cetera, because the VA manages chronic conditions in a coordinated, integrated way, unlike the episodic fragmented care that's delivered in the private sector. Brent Copeland with the Veterans Healthcare Policy Initiative says the Trump administration is trying to shift veterans health care from the Veterans Administration to the private sector. And despite a recent hiring binge, he says VA facilities in Florida are still plagued by staff shortages. Over the last four or five years, we've seen massive record budgets for the Department of Veterans Affairs. Yet at the same time, there's also been um, commissions that have been begun to start up, like the Air Commission, the Asset and Infrastructure Review Commission, uh, that is looking at shrinking the footprint of the Department of Veterans Affairs, seemingly at the absolute worst time. The VA facilities in the state are holding steady at 102, but again, if the Asset and Infrastructure Review Commission starts up uh, next year, that number may shrink. And I think that when it goes back to talking about uh, things the VA could do better, you know, there's probably always going to be a role for private care at the VA. That's just the way it is. Uh, but the number of vacancies that have been a chronic problem in the VA for almost a decade now um, are continuing, even though they've hired 24,000 uh, people to come into the system and work uh, since COVID started. But the Miami VA currently has 310 vacancies. West Palm Beach has 465. Gainesville is at 1,054 uh, staff vacancies. Tampa's at 463, and in Orlando, there are only three. So there's still a lot of work to do when it comes to staffing up the VA and making sure that basic care can be provided at these uh, facilities. Copeland says VA facilities provide better care for veterans because they treat the whole person, not just the ailment du jour. Study after study has found that the quality of care delivered by the VA is generally equal to or better than the care delivered in the private sector, and they do it at a fraction of the cost. In many areas, the VA offers specialized trauma and rehabilitative care for veterans that cannot be obtained elsewhere at any price. The PSC Nominating Commission sends four names to the governor for an appointment on the Public Service Commission, including three state lawmakers who are leaving the legislature this year. Senator Tom Lee of Thanatasassa, Representative Mike LaRosa of St. Cloud, and Representative Holly Roshine of Key Largo made the list of finalists. So did Commissioner Donald Pullman, who's seeking reappointment to another four-year term on the PSC. The governor makes the final pick. The job pays $132,000 per year. Your calendar of events begins at 9 with an online meeting of the South Florida Water Management District Governing Board, the Triumph Gulf Coast Board, which helps administer money from the settlement over Deepwater Horizon disaster, is holding a conference call at 10. The Florida State University Board of Trustees is holding an online meeting at 1. The Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services Hemp Advisory Committee holds a conference call at 4. And at 5.30, the Department of Transportation is holding an online meeting about the design of a project to widen Florida's turnpike from the Mineola Interchange all the way to U.S. 27 in Lake County. Finally today, a 27-year-old Florida man is charged with drunk driving following an accident in Sefner. Troopers say he ran a red light on State Road 54 and crashed into another car. But not just any car. It has a black body, a tan top, and a spotlight. 
If that didn't give it away, there's also a bank of lights on the roof and the words State Trooper on the side. The Seffner man and the trooper were transported to the hospital with minor injuries. Now, the Highway Patrol is not releasing the name of the guy who hit their cruiser because of Marcy's Law, the constitutional amendment that's supposed to protect the rights of crime victims. How a guy who crashed into a trooper after running a red light is a victim is beyond me. But this is becoming more common in Florida. In fact, Tallahassee police even used Marcy's Law as an excuse not to release the name of one of their cops who killed a man. That's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics. Thank you.